Welcome to the Invincible Innovation Show, the podcast for changemakers. Each week, I talk to the most fascinating entrepreneurs and innovation leaders about innovation, strategy, and design. Hey, everyone. Today, we'll talk about corporate startups and scaling them. Welcome to Invincible Innovation Live Show. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm Adima Zolkario, innovation and value creation expert, and I'll be your host. And today with me, I have a very good guest. Hey, Frank Mattes. Hey, Adi. Hey, audience. Good morning. Good afternoon, wherever you are. You're right. So Frank is the founder at Clean Scale Up and the author of Scaling Up Corporate Startups. So I'm so happy to see you here. We are live on LinkedIn, YouTube, and Facebook, and you're much invited to join the discussion and ask questions. We would love to hear what you think. Thanks for Now, having me, Adi. Sure. It's, it's going to be fun. I know it's going to be fun. So let's start with something that I ask all my um, guests. What's the biggest obstacle to innovation? You know, I, I think uh, uh, the companies are just starting to be becoming aware that they are basically having two systems on the one roof. The one system is the day-to-day -day business, right? That's a well-oiled, fine-tuned machine uh, um, optimized over years and decades uh, for running the day-to-day -day business, today's core business, if you like, right? And on the other hand, you have an innovation system that's about... finding new uh, repeatable um, business models that could be the basis for a sizable and profitable business. The one thing, the first uh, system, if you will, that runs on an efficiency and predictability paradigm, right? You want to meet the numbers, the quarterly, the annual numbers. You want with high predictability and efficiency is top of mind, right? On the other side, in the innovation system, you have agility. Right, because that's the only or the best way to explore the unknown. And these two systems do not match. And uh, only now I see companies becoming aware of this fundamental setup and uh, working towards solution how to make these incompatible systems actually making compatible by installing a gearbox or bridge, whatever visual you'd like to use. Yeah, so actually they have something that the, the first one that you just uh, described is the company actually. It's like the mm -hmm. core of what the usually what we call a company. And exactly. the other one is like a step sister, I would say, that is not exactly as the first one. and they cannot really measure up. It's not the same type of KPIs, the same type of methods, the same type of what they're doing. Exactly, exactly. Exactly. And it's also about, obviously, the size, right? And if you have a, the company um, typically in the billions of revenues, at, at least the client base that I'm working with, right? And if you're successful in scaling up an innovation, well, after three or five years, you have some 10, 20, 30 millions of revenue, right? And obviously, that's a, that's a different order of magnitude. And also, how do you make the basically the few uh, that um, running, optimizing today's business is as important as uh, creating the business that the company will be in in three to five years? That's also a big challenge. So if, if you come to, to these companies and you consult them and they tell you, you know, it's really important, but the revenues come from here. And we're more or less sure that it will be this way for the next five, maybe 10 years. 
what would you tell them in order for them to have more like energy and emphasize on the second option? Yeah, it, it depends on um, if the if the platform is already burning. Let's put it that way. So one of my clients is, for instance, BP, one of the largest uh, globally largest companies, right? And they are in the oil and gas business today, right? With a tiny, tiny little appendix called um, New Energy. Uh, and uh, obviously, as we all know, when it comes to corporate climate, oil and gas will not be the energy of choice moving forward. So it takes years, uh, Adi, to take a, uh, to turn around such an aircraft carrier. So. Uh, for instance, BP is well aware that they need to start now to basically gradually shift the, 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 the uh, aircraft carrier in a way that they also keep their shareholders happy, right? So it's not about just flicking a switch, but you need to start in time to make that change happen. And uh, innovation plays a, plays a major part in there. Obviously, there are other choices like M&A buying startups, but statistics tell you all of them are risky businesses, right? There's only one out of 12 um, uh, um, uh, startups that corporates acquired where they are completely satisfied. And we all know that uh, M&As also fail with a 70, 70% uh, rate. So that's a risky business as well. And yeah. interestingly, <clears throat> McKinsey has shown end of last year that organic two things, first of all, organic growth, meaning growing also via innovation, is over the long term, over many industries, many companies, the more safer bet to create value. And the second piece is building new business from innovation is the preferred choice, uh, the preferred option within that organic growth uh, bucket. So I so think it's, it's more, more and more successful. companies are becoming aware of this. And it's more successful than just buying the startups that you think that might take some of your market to grow uh, within the company. Yeah, but but it, it needs to make sense, Adi, isn't it? I mean, uh, it's not about just uh, scouting for startups, running some technical pilots uh, with them, maybe buying uh, one of or two of these. Uh, they have fancy valuations as well, just tiny little revenues, and yeah. they uh, um, are acquired for billions and hundreds of millions, etc. So it, it it needs to make sense. And at the end of the day, you have to make a business out of it, right? Uh, statistics show you that um, if a company acquires a startup, 50% of the top talent that they acquire is gone after two years. So they're left up with basically more or less the same team, right, if you will, right? But then they still have to make a business out of it. So <laughs> that's also yeah. not the panacea, so to say. Yeah, the fact that they're losing the real talents, the founders, the people yeah. who are really important in that startup is really connected to the way they see this merge. And they think that they will buy the idea and yes. more or less that's enough. And they could just merge it into their regular processes and way of thinking to their regular people that are in yeah. the, the company. And it will just, you know, be attached, you know, like Velcro. Exactly. But it doesn't really work this way. So what do no. you think is preventing them from, from really succeeding in that? Yeah, I think there are two, th two sides of that. Uh, if you look at the corporate side, obviously, we touched upon this one. There's a well-oiled system telling you, if you're in a large corporate, how to do things, right? You've got that, the rules, the procedures, the politics, the governance, the committees, etc., all that stuff, right? So now comes that um, 20, 50, 80 people company with the great technology, right? 
And um, I mean, two worlds meet or in practice, they don't collide. Exactly. Two meets collide. <laughs> exactly. But on the other hand, it's also a, a startup issue. I mean, the people who joined that startup basically said, well, we want to have the entrepreneurial freedom, the espresso machines, the bean bags, right? And we want to make a dent in the universe, right? And now they are basically tied to monthly planning meetings and they have to stick to the rules. So uh, they don't like this environment, right? So, and then obviously they're looking for other environments where they can really have an impact. So it's not good guy, bad guy, but in, in that respect, we certainly see these two systems that are not compatible. And could, could, could a corporate really adjust anything to just match these people and make them want to stay? Yeah, actually, actually, I think that's um, what what um, some 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 leading companies, uh, if you think about business building, also having a kind of cross the chasm thing, right? So you also have the pioneers, early adopters, and two, three, four years down the road, Adi, we'll see that many, many customers, mainstream companies, will adopt that kind of thinking. So let me tell you two things about the pioneers. Uh, so first, the the pioneers are building what some of them call the innovation infrastructure beyond the lab. So a lab, definitely um, innovation lab, innovation center, digital labs, incubators, accelerators, you name it, right? They are, have their own infrastructure. Typically, they have their own spaces, right? Typically, they have a budget and they run the things that um, are most helpful in that kind of agile environment, right? Uh, hardly um, um, uh, any company, only I know only about very few of them, have thought about how should an innovation infrastructure look like after the labs, meaning after MVP or so. So what needs to be in place, in other words, to make these two systems work together, right? And um, so, I mean, there are a couple of things uh, that one could keep in mind. The Lean Scale-Up helps you in designing such an innovation in, in infrastructure beyond the lab. Maybe we we'll touch upon that. And the second piece is, uh, I think it's also very interesting to see that large companies are thinking hard about what it really, really means if the company should become more innovative. So typically in the public discussion, you hear views that uh, say how, uh, or question, how can we make the company more innovative, right? And they do they run their idea campaigns and you see those posters everywhere and uh, yeah. uh, the CEO says, well, innovation is important. Everybody is asked. Yeah. So you have the implicit mindset that 100% of the company needs to become innovative. In my observation, Adi, this is not true, far from truth. Because at the end of the day, you will still have a day-to-day -day business, right? And you want to have this business, the day-to-day -day business, running on that uh, um, uh, efficiency and uh, predictability paradigm. So if you want to have, a, if you buy a new car, Adi, uh, right, you want to make sure that this is manufactured with quality. Six Sigma, no mistakes. Uh, you yeah. wouldn't buy a car that is uh, glued and sold uh, sold yeah. together with agile. Of course, weights, you right? know that's that's yeah. why we don't have any car manufacturing in in Israel. So we know to I do might, so, how to do might, startups. Might, but we don't. Might, might, might come with the electricity uh, e vehicle boom, etc. But here's the interesting point, Adi. 
I've got three data points actually. The one is 4%, the second is 6%, the third is 12%. These are percent of staff that big companies say need to be ambidextrous. That means they need to understand the innovation world as well as being able to translate this into the process world. 4% that's Daimler, the German car maker. Uh, 6% that's the Dutch ING bank. And 12% that's the Swiss telecom provider, Swisscom. So it's if you look at these figures, it's it's a, it's around ten percent more or less, etc. And you can also conclude the more digital the industry is, uh, the more, the higher that percentage is, right? So by enabling these four, six, twelve percent of staff to th be able to think in both worlds, right, the day-to-day -day business world and the innovation world, it also helps to uh, basically make these startups then connect because these people more basically understand the innovation world while still having that corporate process-driven background. But what you mean is that these like percentage of people, they mm -hmm. do the, the, they are the glue to match exactly. what's the yeah. future and yeah. what's going on right now. Yes. But if, if you would say that innovation is not only that glue, it's not only that connection, it's just thinking differently about what you're doing, better way of doing processes, services, and products all the time. It doesn't have to be only the, this group of like people doing the accelerator, doing the incubator, doing the, the merges, doing the scouting, whatever, everything. So their, their job is more like structured in that sense. Yeah, exactly. And you only need, uh, that's at least what these three data points mm -hmm. tell us, around 10%. So if you look at running operations, right, you have a supply chain manager meaning the guy looking for having the raw materials and the com components in place that they can go into the car, et cetera. I mean, there's little space for agile in there, right? So it, it's uh, obviously you want to take him along in the journey and probably with AI tools, et cetera, further down the road, the nature of his job will also be changing, right? Um, uh, no doubt about that. But you really need, uh, say, um, a small percentage of the company that is skilled, trained, and has the mindset to think in both worlds. And could you tell us about, about Lean Scale-Up and that, how does it help companies innovate better? Yeah, sure, sure. I can talk for hours, Adi. How much time do we have? Yeah, we, I told you I'm going to be good with you in this discussion, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, sure. So, so some four years ago, Adi, um, I noticed from my clients, um, which are some 50% of the uh, German uh, prime stock index, and then some European or even global champions, companies like BP, Philips, Telefonica, ING Bank, etc., etc. I noticed that they were basically tell shifting the conversation. Informally, formally, it was about the front end of innovation, right? How can we find innovation partners? How do we find the best startups? How do we collaborate with them, etc.? These kind of questions. Some four years ago, these companies were saying, "Well, Frank." We're we, we kind of convinced that we have enough good ideas in the front end, but we are not good in turning them into business impact, which means uh, revenues, but it could also mean, think about the BP example, corporate transformation, right? So 
how do we solve that problem? And I looked around early and I did not find any solution um, at that time. Neither big consulting companies nor academia was even being aware of that business building problem, as I said. So I brought together some 20 companies and we started to nail down the business building problem, arriving at that two systems view, uh, more or less, and then working towards a solution. How can it be solved, right? And what, what we came up with, and uh, this has also stand, uh, stood the test with um, some dozen or more large companies, global leaders in their space as well. So I think we can consider this to be a field-tested framework by now, is to say you need to have three capabilities to build your innovation infrastructure beyond the lab. The first one is the how-to, right? Um, turns out, Adi, that most of the validation frameworks that companies are using to, to uh, look at ideas and concepts to develop the product from first functional prototypes uh, to an MVP to a minimum marketable product, etc. These approaches completely forgot one dimension, uh, which was quite striking, which to me, after decades of being in the innovation space, was, was kind of shocking. I mean, if you're a corporate startup or if you're a corporate venture, meaning a startup with a significant investment from a corporate, you're operating in a corporate context, right? And all these validation frameworks didn't take into account that corporate context. Yeah. They looked at customer, what's the right business model, these kind of questions, which, which are yeah. perfectly fine, right? Yeah, I, I think they were born in order to help startups. And, and exactly, corporate exactly, are exactly. different in that aspect. Exactly, exactly. But uh, basically, so there was a need when, when I was working through these issues with the 20 or so companies to really say we need to build in that corporate context, right? It also turned out, for instance, that transition to scaling up um, is, is also a kind of challenging phase, right? Because the people, just taking one example, uh, the people that you um, uh, need in validation are different people than the people who do the scaling up, who build the business out of that. The latter are people that are more entrepreneurial driven, right? Uh, they are basically running at high clock speeds, whereas the validation people, they are more, uh, let's say, eth ethnocentric, right? They are very curious. They want to deeply understand the customer and the problems, etc. All of them are right, right? But you cannot basically build a business with the first group of people. You need different people. And then you have the how-to in the scaling up itself. Just to give you one idea, if we imagine that at the end of the validation, uh, the startup, the corporate startup has an initial product and maybe one or two initial customers. Let's say for the sake of the argument, he has some um, uh, 500K of revenues, right? But if the goal is to take it to a, um, a 10 million business in three years, you have an annual growth rate of 170%. Now contrast this with the typical growth rates of companies, two, three, 4%. Right, so this is rocket speed, it's hyper growth. So you also need to know how to manage that kind of hyper growth, how to make the market, how to grow the organization, how do you do the recruiting process, how to build a culture of growth, etc. So that's the how-to part in the lean scale up. But you also need two more capabilities. The one is I call dual leadership, right? Leadership looking at both worlds. Uh, 
making sure that um, this corporate scale-up finds a supportive environment, as we call it. And the third big piece is culture and collaboration. This refers to the culture of growth that you need in scaling up, but also the culture then that uh, shows up when the red shirts, the guys from the day-to-day um, -day business operating in red oceans, meet the blue shirts, right? The innovators that are looking yeah. for the blue oceans. That's, that's tricky as well. Yeah, it seems that what is not taking into account when you think about startups uh, methods is all the strength that you could get as a corporate. So they have data, they have IP, they have knowledge, they have uh, connections, they have clients, suppliers, they know the, the, what's going on around them for years. So it seems that all these advantages are not taking into account usually. Super point, uh, Adi. I mean, that's exactly why a corporate should launch a corporate startup uh, as being basically the uh, first sell of what should become a, a business. It's about leveraging these corporate assets, uh, as I would uh, quote the things that you all mentioned. And it's it's really shocking to see how few uh, corporate startups and their motherships, their companies, actually think about what exactly should uh, adds value to that corporate startup and how it could be used in building the business to create an unfair advantage over greenfield startups, over other slow-moving incumbents, and also to accelerate the journey, right? Because if you could tap into the sales force from the operative units, to take one example, but this is tricky, maybe we touch upon this as well, uh, then obviously you may be reaching these 10 million revenue targets, not in three years, but in two years, right? And uh, obviously that makes yeah. a lot of a difference. But what you just mentioned about the sales force mm -hmm. within a, a specific department, this, I guess, would would come up with like some kind of cannibalization of, of your current uh, revenues. They would say, okay, currently we're we're having the, this offer to our clients and now we're going to sell them something else. And it, they need to make sure that it, it's not interfering in any way to what they are currently selling. Uh, so this is one pro uh, very good example, Ari. Thanks for that, mm -hmm. showing how important considering that corporate context is. Uh, right? I mean, these innovators, uh, not downplaying anyone, right? They can think about billions of business models, right? And then they run into the harsh reality that there are, for instance, cannibalization efforts. But on the, on the other side, Ari, if you look at it, I mean, uh, disrupt yourself before someone else will, right? And um, there are cases out there, for instance, a German uh, company in trading steel. If they go the digital route, this will cut, cannibalize the existing margins that they have. But on the other hand, and this is now the corporate view, the dual leadership issue that I touched upon, right? There's a bigger pie out there that the company can eat it to so balancing that's 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 an important thing but obviously if you have these cannibalization efforts right if you do not adjust the system the corporate sales folks would probably say no i'm not so much interested because that would yeah. cut into my bonus yeah. so you need, yeah. need to well, align the system before you do that yeah, and then incentivize, incentivizing the people, yes. not only the sales, but the whole system, you know, to exactly. make sure 
that they're into it and they buy in, into exactly. a new idea. Yes. I, I, it's connected to something, to something I heard in my, like a few interviews before. Yes. And we talked about the meat industry and, yes. and we know that there are parts of the world that eat less, less meat and they consume other like artificial meat. And they could say, okay, we don't care. We're making so much money out of that. But, but you know, people are changing. Customers are changing. Traditions exactly. are changing. Exactly. It's, it's the same uh, thing as with BP, right? So you have a big disruption, which in this case is not even uh, startup triggered, right? Obviously, we know Beyond Meat and these companies, right? Coming up with uh, lab-grown burgers, etc. But the real shift is not one particular company, not a particular startup. The real disruptor is changing consumer perception, right? So if you're a meat company, I'm fully with you. You also have that transformational challenge, right? And if you're not able, basically, to innovate uh, your um, uh, way into that meat, low meat or meat less mm -hmm. future, you'll have some problem in your business model further down the road. Sure. We have a LinkedIn user. And yes. he said, I, I believe in hybrid models for big corporations, building early, early enough internal capabilities added by M&A partnership and joint initiative. However, it looks like a case-by-case -case decision. Thanks, the LinkedIn user. Yeah, that's good. I mean, hybrid models could, could, could translate on the one side, in my view, on that kind of uh, ambidextrous people that we already spoke about, right? It could also relate to structures that these people operate in. So a very practical question would be, are these 4, 6, 12% of staff that we discussed, Adi, are they still sitting in their old department structure? Or is there something in between, right? Which could also be the home for uh, acquired startups, which is uh, less corporate-ish, right? You know, those light gray office furniture and, and the yeah. worn, worn out coffee machine you get. <laughs> sure, <laughs> coffee is really important. I, I, I understand what you're saying. So are they really part of what the current is or they're like in between the current and the future? Exactly. What could be? Yes, yes. So could you give us like an example for a successful corporate startup? So uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, one big one that I fully admire is um, Amazon Web Services, right? So, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm reading a book that I highly recommend to all the readers out there. It's mm -hmm. called Working Backwards. This is a book that has been written by two Amazon veterans, right? And what they are doing is they're looking basically into how Amazon operates, right? When it comes to product development, when it comes to recruiting, when it comes to innovation, etc. And the typical stories that you read about Amazon, even in books uh, that are dedicated for Amazon, is more the outside view. Yes, they have the two pizza rule. Okay, so we all know about that rule, yeah. right? But these two gentlemen in their book, Working Backwards, tell the inside scoop. So what's what's really the issue and why did they arrive at where they arrived? And actually, two pizzas was just one stop along the way. But I guess that would take too far, right? Yeah. So from what I take from, from that book is after, say, an initial ramp up, um, end of the 90s, Amazon, Jeff Bezos became aware 
that the whole IT infrastructure that they had will not take them to the next level. So that they needed basically to completely change their innovation infrastructure while obviously on a wild growth path. And then they got the crazy idea, why not let customers pay for our superior infrastructures? So they, they, they build what today is that fully scalable, um, highly performant, highly secure environment, Amazon Web Services, which is now, if I got it right, a $19 billion business for Amazon with a fantastical growth rates, right? And basically by opening up certain layers of that infrastructure to external clients, they made these external clients pay for the ramp up in that. But there are also obviously uh, also less um, uh, spectacular examples. So, for instance, one of the um, companies, the German steel trader, is now creating an industry platform that basically is not only selling steel, but branches out along the whole steel value chain, reaches out into um, other raw materials. It's called Klöckner I. They currently already make some 35% of the corporate revenues by these new businesses that they're in. And the goal for next year is to be at 60%. So there are um, successful examples, obviously. Yeah. It seems that we are very biased for companies who are B2C, that in the end, they have a brand that we, we see. And what you're, you're describing is a B2B company that might be very, very successful in innovation, but we as clients are not aware of what they're doing. Exactly. And therefore, we always say Google and Amazon and, and, and Elon Musk, I don't know. Like something yeah, like but that. keep in mind, Amazon is B2B as well as B2C, right? The Amazon marketplace is a B2B business. Amazon Web Services is a B2B business, right? So yeah, but the brand is known. Buying some books there, right? Yeah, <laughs> if they if they're trying to make so much money out of me, I'm not sure it's a good business model. Yeah. But uh, in general, we know the brand, <clears throat> so the brand is is very known. And 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 by the way, Jeff Bezos as the brand of Amazon is very known. Mm. And, and what is the skill or knowledge that that these innovation leaders need to know better than today? Mm, I, I think, I mean, uh, fr from what I see, Adi, is, I mean, if you look at the typical CEO of a typical company, he or she has made uh, his or her career in that um, established business, right? He started off in, in one department, maybe got an um, international assignment, returned back, became VP, SVP, and ended up in CEO. So his his or her life was basically in uh, he was a, 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 he or she was walking around in a red shirt to put it like that. Now they understand that innovation is important, right? But I find only few CEOs that really understand that um, uh, innovation is is not a process. It's more a flow, if you will. I mean, there's the term disciplined entrepreneurship, right? You would build, test, measure, learn, repeat. If things do not work, uh, you, you take a step back, you pivot, you try other things until you finally nail it and then you scale it, right? So um, I think the, the, the skill that they need to learn is to understand more about these two systems and what it takes 
what kind of innovation infrastructure the company needs for their purposes to align these two systems to basically make innovation pay, if you will, right, to really build new businesses and help corporate transformation. The same could be said about the board. Definitely. We're talking about the C-level, but the board is specific Definitely. people too, right? Definitely, definitely. And I make to, to, to make a very sharp point about that, I mean, if you're a, C, a CEO, right, and you have a promising corporate startup, right, that did all this validation, um, the Lean Scale-Up framework talks about worthy to be scaled and ready to be scaled, right? And now these people stand in front of you and they tell you, well, we only need 20 million and then we generate a business that will be massive in the future, right? Will be the new business arena for the company in five years. Well, I mean, you could think, well, do I invest 20 million in that, right? Or do I invest 20 million in strengthening my core business, right? Where I have a lot of certainty that, for instance, I get more revenues or reduce um, the unit costs, make more margin, etc. Keeping in mind that he might be saying, well, my tenure is still only three more years to go, then I retire. I mean, yeah. these kind of personal um, agendas also play a role. It's not about the intellectual exercise alone. Yeah, of course. And, and it's the same goes for the ones who are taking care of the stakeholders and what they get. Yeah. They invested something, they want to get the return, right? Yes. And, and the CEO itself, you would say, okay, this is the mark I could either go go be safe on what we could do and deliver what, I, what I'm, I'm incentivized to do, right? So I need to have mm. the, the next quarter and next quarter. And this is something which is futuristic. It has lots of unknowns. And I don't know if in my, my lifetime as a CEO, I will ever see that. It, it goes like, I think it's really related to politics too, right? So you're, you have like exactly. four years. Yeah, and exactly. And, and, and I mean, if, we, if you think about all these digital plays, Adi, I mean, I've worked with corporate startups that are pushing the envelope when it comes to artificial intelligence. I've worked with other corporate startups that are doing great things on the blockchain, right? I mean, I don't, I can only follow them up to a point, right? And I imagine that a more um, seasoned, experienced CEO in his 50s, 60s, etc., really doesn't understand what's going on. So you have those corporate startups and they will provide all the proof. They have the pilot clients. They have already a decent revenue. And they're saying, we only need 10 or 20 million to take it to scale. And he says, well, it makes a lot of sense, but I don't understand what these guys are talking about. Yeah. So should I take the risks? Should I strengthen my core business? I mean, that's, that's the real tough issues when it comes to dual leadership. Yeah, I think that they need to think more like a VC, and that's a different kind of, of mindset and skill. You know, exactly. Really think about it this way. Exactly. So, and it turns out the best way to scale up these corporate startups is to take on, as you said, a VC-type mindset, right? So you talk about earmarked funding, putting away uh, the whole funding to safeguard it from the ups and downs of the core business, but then release that funding in a metered way. So only when they hit 
uh, predefined growth milestones that basically uh, link together with the product, with the market, with the organization, with the traction that they are getting. Only then they get the rate for funding the next round. Yeah. And actually, you need that kind of approach to attract top talent. Right. Nobody, uh, if you're a top talent and you hear about that corporate startup, you wouldn't want to join this if you're not sure that uh, the, 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 the plug might be pulled three months down the road. Yeah. And, and you need to have a portfolio. So it's not enough to have one or two or three. You need to manage Definitely. all of them. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the most surprising thing you learned about innovation after so many years of experience? Yeah, um, two, two things I, I think that I already mentioned, uh, Adi. First of all, it's one company, but there are two systems. Two systems that are designed for totally different purposes, run the business, change the business, right? That have their own rules. But uh, up so far, there has been very, very little thinking about, uh, first of all, awareness that there are two systems and then about how to connect them in a meaningful way via gearbox. And maybe the second way is when uh, second thing when I um, had a deep dive into that that all what you currently see out there in validation frameworks doesn't look at the corporate context, right? And so even Steve Blank, one of the fathers of the Lean Startup, said in an interview June last year with the Boston Consulting Group, well, companies try to adopt the Lean Startup. Uh, as is, but but obviously, since the corporate context is not um, respected, they ended up producing, quote, unquote, tons of innovation theater, right? So uh, I think corporates are becoming more aware, but it's interesting to see that it took them so long to, to, to find this out. Yeah. So what's your number one tip for innovation leader? Um. I, Probably, um, uh, I have to, I have to. Number one would be read the yeah, upcoming. One book. and two. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, lean scale up. The book will come out in May, so there's a, sure. a field tested framework. Um, some thirty companies are, pl are applying it to various degrees, obviously already, and there's a lot of good stuff in there on how to create new business um, uh, from innovation. And the second piece is um, uh, really think about that innovation infrastructure beyond the lab. Maybe that's a good working title, right? What would we need in order to connect these two systems, right? So that we can take the best from corporate. You mentioned those corporate assets, the brand, the experts, the customers, et cetera, et cetera. While at the same time connecting them for a good cause, building new business with the innovation power. So I want to thank you for your time. So where, where could people hear more about you and, and find out about the book and contact you? Um, I think the safest bet without sharing some complicated links uh, would be uh, visit me on my LinkedIn profile, right? And um, there will be also the link for the book waiting list. And we're doing all, also things out there like giving away free, free chapters, having some webinars, etc. So please stop by my LinkedIn profile. Sure. So I want to thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And, you know, like I, I we just Same said, here, before, Same here. Sure, it's, it's like the second time that we talk and it's always fun. So that's good. And, and we have a very inspiring from Dr. Leonard Hutter. So thank you for your, um, for your comment. And, uh, and one more thing that I said in the beginning, you know, 
that I'm going to reveal that we are we have a, some kind of a connection. It seems that my oh, father's name, <laughs> yeah, so Frank Mattes. My father's name is Mattes originally, so we need to find out. Maybe next time we'll talk about that connection, and and he changed it when he came to Israel. So <laughs> thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. And to all of you change makers out there, thank you for joining me. It's been a pleasure. You're much invited to visit InvincibleInnovation.com and I'll see you next week with another insightful talk. See Thanks, ya. Ari. Thanks, audience. Goodbye. See ya. I'm Adima Zaukario, and you've been listening to the Invincible Innovation Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, invincibleinnovation.com, where you can learn more about our programs and my book, Innovating Through Chaos. I'll be waiting for you next week in our next episode. Thank you for listening.